Okay, thank you, Ken, for the kind introduction. I am very happy to be here and a little bit relieved, as Ken described. So, uh, as Ken mentioned, last year I gave a talk that looked back at the severe weather of the previous season, and I also gave a bit of an outlook to the year ahead. So what I'm going to talk about in this time is also the highlights from last season. It was pretty quiet, so there's not much to talk about nearby, so I'm going to go and talk about things elsewhere. Because I don't want to spend two years talking about how quiet it was. I want to talk about some tornadoes. <laughs> but I'm going to have to go a long ways to find them. So uh, I'm also going to mention just the flooding last year. Because while we didn't have a lot of tornado activity in this area, we did have a lot of flooding. So we had some activity. I'm also going to look ahead into 2011. And uh, using a little help from the El Nino and La Nina situation that we have, and some other things we can look at to get an idea of what might happen, we can at least give some projection to where the odds are stacked for our severe weather season coming up this year. So let's talk about the tornado drought of 2009 now through 2010 in this area. Once again, last year was a below average year for tornado activity in Nebraska. We had 38 tornadoes. Our average is 51. That's well below normal. In the entire state, we only had two that were EF2 or stronger. We normally have several that are EF2 or stronger. The most active day in the entire state was June 7th, where there were seven tornadoes. Those were mo mostly small, weak, and short-lived, and mostly in western Nebraska. And if you thought it was getting any better in Iowa, by the way, I am a storm person, so for me, better means stormier. If you're the opposite, I apologize. Uh, it's, it was also slow in Iowa as well. They had 35 tornadoes in the state of Iowa last year. Uh, the average is 49, once again, well below normal. There was one EF4 strength tornado up in northwest Iowa. There were two EF2s. But again, the strong tornadoes were definitely well below normal. That most active day was June 25th in Iowa. There were seven tornadoes that day, including the one EF4 tornado. And that was mostly in northwest Iowa. Overall, this is now the second year running between 2009 and 2010, where we had slow weather, snow tor slow tornado weather, I should say, in the area, um, which can make it really easy to get a little bit complacent and kind of forget how active we can be from time to time. So I guess one message I would, I would urge before Brian even gets in here is, you know, we've had a couple quiet years, but le you know, let's not let that lull us into a sense that it's going to be quiet for a while, that the potential for active seasons does in fact exist, and maybe even this year a little bit. So let's look at this in pictures now for 2010. This red circle up here is where a lot of the tornado activity did happen. South Dakota, North Dakota, and over into Minnesota. It was pretty active last year. In fact, it was above average there. Meanwhile, here in our neck of the woods, very, very quiet in this part of the country. Very few tornadoes, not many strong ones at all, not very short-lived. Get a little more active again when you head down south. But uh, I think most of us are living in this bubble here and have been now for the last couple of years. Now, I think a good forecaster is only doing a good job if they look back at their previous forecasts and talk about what went right and what went wrong. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about my forecast from last year. Some of you may have even been in the room when I talked about it. Last year, I mentioned that we were coming out of an El Nino. In years that we're coming out of an El Nino, we tend to load the dice to being a little bit quieter than normal. It doesn't mean it happens every time, but the odds increase for that. So I showed this little spinny chart here and said if you were going to spin that pinwheel, you know, you'd have a better chance of landing on normal or quiet than anything else, certainly. Very little chance of an active season. And as far as tornadoes go, that was actually the case. Uh, between the El Nino, the cold, snowy winter, and the start that that gave us in the spring, and the very wet ground, our temperatures were very cool near the ground, there was a lot of moisture in the air. 
in any case, we did end up being less active last year, just as forecast, at least related to tornadoes. But we were certainly not uh, quiet when it comes to rain and thunderstorms. Uh, especially in early June of last year, we had very persistent thunderstorms. Most of those happened at night. Uh, th some of them were severe. We did have some severe hail, especially, and some wind. But uh, that led us to some flooding, and that's a problem by itself. So the wild cards I threw in here, we were starting the year in an El Nino last year, but we transitioned very rapidly to a La Nina. That kind of messes the patterns up a little bit, makes it a little tougher to forecast. But also, the wild card for last year, there were plenty of thunderstorms, even if there weren't any tornadoes. So I consider it to be a pretty decent outlook, or at least last year behaved a lot like the pattern would expect it to behave. Will that be the case this year? I don't know. I'll let you know next year. So let's talk for just a minute or two about the flooding in eastern Nebraska. It was a wicked year for flooding, as many of you probably know who live in the area. Major flooding along the Elkhorn and Platte River, and also uh, moderate flooding along the Missouri River. Many tributaries flooded and flooded pretty high. Record flooding at Neely. There was, uh, uh, there was a bridge collapse up near Norfolk. Railroad bridge collapsed. Three men went in the water. One, unfortunately, didn't come back out again. Um, that was the only fatality from the flooding, which is a relief in, in that sense, at least, because uh, I think people were heeding warnings and, and not driving down these roads when they saw the water flowing over them. Uh, the reason that we had all that flooding last year was because we had one front, basically, that sat up across the area for a couple of weeks, and storms just went across that front over and over again, repeatedly. Uh, we had several days in June where we had more than one inch of rain, and that's pretty rare to get. You might get one once in a while, but having several is pretty rare. We had near record to record rainfall across the area for the months of June and July combined. It was really a rainy season, and that's really what set us up for this flooding. Good news is this year we're not quite set up the same. Uh, if anything, we might lean a little bit dry in our Lincoln to Omaha and areas south. So we're not looking at the same type of flooding this year here. Bad news is they are looking at it again up north. So uh, we should be out of the woods at least as far as that goes. There we go. So since there aren't really any tornadoes in the area to talk about and give you a recap of last year, I'm going to have to go well outside the area to find tornadoes to talk about. So I'm going to give you a few overviews of some of the, the bigger events from last year. Some of them, like this one in uh, Bodle, South Dakota, is one of the biggest of the year for just about anybody. Uh, some of the others are only big for me and Vortex because we saw tornadoes those days. <laughs> so uh, here's the first one I'm going to talk about. There was an EF4 tornado that passed near Bodle, South Dakota. That's all the way up here in north central South Dakota. Luckily, there were no fatalities or major injuries. This storm was observed and chased by several chasers and several very experienced, very reasonable, not yahoos who go driving into storms. Several chasers had a lot of trouble that day with muddy roads. Remember, it was very wet up there last year. And uh, in addition to that, they were complicated by some mapping software that showed them roads where roads didn't exist. Between the two, uh, several chasers got stuck in a muddy two-track or basically a field that they drove into thinking it would be a road there and had a near miss. So it's a good example of uh, even a good experienced chaser can have a close call and it is a dangerous hobby for us even though you know we try to be careful. So this is going to be a radar loop. On the left is the reflectivity, that's the rainfall. On the right is the velocity where you see green and red together and very bright. That means that there's probably something spinning there. Uh, and I'll let this loop a couple of times, but on this right-hand side, you see that right, 
that, that red and green right next to each other, and that was a really strongly spinning storm. And uh, over here on the left, you'll see when it comes back around that it gets that hook shape that a uh, tornado-producing storm often does over there. Just to show you what was going on, for those of you who like to look at what was happening near the surface, there was a low-pressure system moving across South Dakota, a warm front coming into Iowa, a cold front trailing back behind into Nebraska. That supercell happened right up here near what we call the triple point, where it all comes together. This is a pretty typical setup. This is a very normal late May severe weather setup. It was well forecast in advance. I don't think the storm surprised anybody. Uh, on the left, I'll show you at 850, which is, oh, 1,500 feet or so off the deck. Um, we have a lot of moisture. There's a lot of stuff on here, but the important parts are all this strong wind plowing up into South Dakota and all the green there showing a lot of moisture. We had a lot of moisture last year. That wasn't a problem at all. And also, we had this, what we call a trough or a low-pressure system at upper levels of the atmosphere coming ashore in the Rockies. So we had a classic setup for the potential for severe weather. Very classic. And those of you who like to see instability and see wind shear, we had plenty of that going on too. No surprises with this storm at all. So with that, um, I think I need a click. Would you mind giving me a click on that video, please? Show you a video of this storm. There's probably not a lot of sound, and uh, it'll take it a second to get going. Great. There's that hook echo I mentioned. This video is taken by Mike Hollingshead, by the way. This one is not mine. I was working that day, watching it from home. It was very quiet in Nebraska. <laughs> very large tornado pretty quickly. You can see even though the main condensation funnel is right here, this rapid rotation in a larger area. A little close there, buddy. A little close. now a very large tornado as he zooms out. This became what we call a wedge tornado where it is very wide, usually a mile or more wide. And when you're very close you almost can't see the tornado itself because it's so big. Ooh, uh, it was over a mile, but I don't remember specifically how wide. 
um, just a little bit here and again a little zoomed out of a view now and you can see this is really a wide tornado and it rotated violently. It, uh, it took transmission, those big metal transition towers and twisted them and knocked them down. It was uh, very fortunate that it only hit a couple of those kinds of objects and didn't actually hit the town of Bodo. It did destroy a farmstead. Okay. And here's a nice picture of it. Since I was a little worried, you never know with videos if they're going to work or not, I thought I'd throw some pictures in. Uh, here's the tornado and its parent thunderstorm structure. This picture was taken by Scott Blair, who came and talked at the Central Plains Severe Weather Symposium last year. All right, now we're going to move into my chase, so I'm pretty excited about this. I'm on vacation finally. Um, still nothing going on in Nebraska, so I've got to chase elsewhere. On June 5th, there was a moderate risk outlook from eastern Iowa all the way across basically northern Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio here. And there were several tornadoes that night. There were two main uh, tornado-producing thunderstorms in Illinois that evening. The first one started down here just across the river from Iowa and approached but didn't quite get to Peoria, Illinois. That one reached F2 at its strongest touchdown. And so each of these tracks had several touchdowns through the storm evolution. The second storm started up here a little bit further north and east, and this continued all the way across Illinois, basically. Uh, this was an F3 tornado, and it had one fatality and 21 injuries. Uh, pretty strong one up there. And then later on, this went to on to produce tornadoes across Ohio and uh, a tornado in Wood County also had a fatality, two fatalities later that night. So this was a pretty uh, interesting forecast day too because again it was a pretty clear setup and I'm not going to show all the maps I did for the last one. It was a pretty clear setup that there was going to be some severe weather but the question on this particular day is where they would start. Uh, I believe Vortex 2 was positioned in the Des Moines area here hoping things would start a little further uh, to the west because their domain didn't quite go as far east as these did. Um, Thunderstorms actually started down here in southeast Iowa and then started producing tornadoes as they crossed into Illinois and got into some stronger uh, low-level wind shear. So once again, just to show what was going on near the surface, once again, we had a low-pressure system coming across Iowa. This is a couple of hours before things really got going, but this moved pretty rapidly across the state. And uh, once again, can I get a click from you? Awesome, thank you. This is my video and it's horribly shaky. It's the worst video I've ever taken. But it's a really cool tornado. It did unfortunately go straight through the town of Elmwood, Illinois. It, uh, luckily, again, uh, injuries at a minimum, fa no fatalities, did do a lot of damage to their business center in downtown. $75 million of worth of damage, I believe. This is its wall cloud. It's sort of wrapping around the side of its wall cloud. Yes, that's very close to where it's hitting the town there. Okay. And again, since I don't trust my video, I threw in some pictures. I took the video, my husband took the pictures. He also works for the Weather Service and Chases. Uh, here is the thunderstorm before it developed a tornado, a really classic wall cloud structure here. 
little ragged near the bottom, but very low to the ground, you notice. And it had this inflow tail coming in to the side. There we go. Uh, the thunderstorm here is beginning to produce its tornado and progressing into a stronger tornado. And again, here's the wall cloud and here's the tornado kind of on the other, wrapping around the side of that wall cloud. It's a good way to describe it. Tornado got a little curvy shape to it. It did persist for quite a while once it got going. I believe there were a couple of separate touchdowns, but one of them lasted for quite a while as it crossed Elmwood. There we go. There we go. This one was taken when the car was in motion. I thought that's pretty cool. You can see the ground zooming by. Um, but again, a real nice structure. You can see that the storm has this banding look to it where you can almost see that the whole storm is rotating. There we go. And even better here, you can really look up at the storm and see its, its high structure, not just the tornado itself. This is why it's good to chase from far away, because, you know, if you're zoomed in on this thing, you get this little bitty tornado, and, you know, big deal. But if you're back a little ways, you get to see this whole structure with it, and it's really quite breathtaking. So the next day I'm going to tell you about is a pretty big day for Vortex also. And Adam talked about this before me, and if you were in here for Tim Marshall, he talked about it too. June 10th, out in Colorado. This was not what you would call a classic tornado setup this day. There was the warm front across the state here, lifting across Kansas. Uh, there was a little bit of what we call upslope flow here, where the winds are coming around toward the mountains and pointing in at them, taking a little bit of juice with them. And that can be enough to kick off thunderstorms on a lot of days, but it isn't really a great tornado setup. It's the kind of day that you go out to Colorado figuring on taking beautiful pictures of thunderstorms that produce hail and, and not much else. But in fact, there, uh, this thunderstorm here did produce a couple of tornadoes as it moved across. It was so out in the open that it really didn't hit anything. It was rated EF0 because it didn't hit anything. Who knows how, how strong it actually was. So that's a great kind of tornado to watch because you know it's not hitting anything. Nobody's getting hurt. It's just breathtakingly beautiful. Again. Whoops. This thing's jumping on me. So again, here is our, our surface map. We have this flow coming into Colorado. We have a little bit of a, a dip in the front there, low pressure up here, and what we call an outflow boundary. There were thunderstorms through that day in eastern Nebraska, a lot of rain in Nebraska that day, and so the outflow boundary pushed across Nebraska that day. That's kind of a cold, that cold rainy air that comes out of thunderstorms pushes away. And awesome, thank you. This is the last time, I promise. Well, we'll give that one a second before I bail on it and load it from the disk. <laughs> you want to check the Eric and make sure he's on? I can hear me. That's not good. Okay. We'll bail on it. Yeah, it's, it's almost like it's a... That's okay. We'll fix it. We'll just go ahead and install Windows Media Player really quick. <laughs> awesome. There we go. Did I jump into full screen? All right, perfect. And here we go. We were about, I don't know, eight miles from this tornado when it developed. 
And uh, we'd been chasing this one from a distance for quite a while. And once again, beautiful structure. You can see that the storm has sort of a twisted look to it, like a barber pole almost. Great structure. Not a huge tornado, but it was persistent. It lasted for a good eight minutes, Never 10 minutes or so. Uh, however long Tim Marshall said, I trust what he said. And uh, just out in the middle of nothing. Which is actually probably bad for Vortex, too, because they couldn't get to it and deploy their instruments. This is near the ghost town of Last Chance, Colorado, by the way. Um, it's very interesting. There, it, it literally is a ghost town. There are empty buildings with, with nothing in them, uh, signs for buildings that don't exist anymore. Kind of neat. Excellent. Ken, can you throw me back to my presentation? Thank you. Awesome. And since I rightfully didn't trust the video this time, a few more pictures. This is actually storm number one that day that developed a little bit further to the north and it did produce some hail. You can see that it's a pretty skinny thunderstorm. It's what we call a low precipitation supercell. It's not really coming down with a lot of heavy rain that's wrapping around it. Um, it was a really pretty structure for a little while, but this one never really looked like it was going to produce a tornado. It was just a nice structured storm. Here too, nice structure on this storm. There we go. Then we get to this guy and it's just gorgeous. You can see the wall cloud back in there, way back in there. Nice updraft structure there. And one more picture of it. Beautiful storm. So that's all I can tell you about the severe weather from last year. It was everywhere but here, basically. Um, and again, it's, it's uh, not something that'll happen every time. The, uh, the El Nino that was in place in the spring probably contributed to us being slow that last year, but there were certainly other factors in play too. So what does drive tornado activity anywhere? Uh, it's a combination of things. It can be a combination of long-lasting weather patterns. If you get a weather pattern where there's a high pressure over us for weeks at a time, it's going to be really tough to get thunderstorms to develop that can then pr produce tornadoes in the area. So those long-lasting weather patterns have some predictability to them. We can look ahead a week, 10 days, maybe even a little longer and say, you know what, this is not a pattern that's conducive for thunderstorms, or this one is a pattern that's conducive for thunderstorms. And if we're looking good for thunderstorms, we at least have a chance of tornadoes. There's also some effect from how the ground is. If the ground is really wet or really dry, that can have an effect. Uh, especially if it's really dry, it's often a negative effect. And then the third thing that comes in are very small, very, what, what we call transient, moving around a lot, uh, little boundaries, little fronts, little outflows from other thunderstorms that cross each other and things start to spin. Our ability to predict those is at best a couple of hours, and even that's stretching it sometimes because often they happen in between our observation sites and we can't even see them. So we have this, this kind of funnel of factors where we get from our very large patterns that last a while and we can predict them down to these very small-scale features that we can barely see, let alone predict. And all of these things play into our potential for tornadoes during the course of a season. So our job as forecasters is to figure out what we can predict and then try to use that and, and take advantage of the information that we can get out of these things. And one of those factors is El Nino and La Nina. How many of you have heard the words El Nino and La Nina before I talked today? Good, that's a lot of hands. How many of you know what we're in now? 
Yep, I'm hearing them come down to me. La Nina, yes, we're in a La Nina right now, although it is weakening. We're starting to come out of that La Nina. The presence of a La Nina does tend to favor an active pattern for tornadoes across the plains because of the storm track that storms end up taking. When it's declining like this one is, it's a little bit less of a, of a signal uh, compared to when it's really entrenched and it's going to stick around a while. So in the areas I've got shaded in red here, uh, those are areas that showed particularly uh, higher chances for active tornado seasons. And notice I'm talking in terms of chances for tornado seasons. It's never an absolute. I'm not going to be able to stand up here ever and say, yes, we will be more tornado-y than normal. But I can at least say, you know what, the dice are loaded that way. And in these areas here, the dice are loaded toward a more active season. Likewise, the areas in the blues are loaded toward a less active season. So what causes this? Um, La Nina, or El Nino, it's, its brother that's not out there right now, influences the upper-level jet stream. And as it influences the jet stream, that changes the way that thunderstorms, or that storm systems can track across the central US. In uh, La Nina, when it's going away, we tend to get that storm track coming at us a little bit like this. It comes kind of from the Pacific down around through the plains, almost uh, due west to even a little bit northwest flow for over us. Uh, we do tend to have lower than normal surface pressures in the lee of the Rockies. That shows me that that's picking up on the development of more thunderstorm systems than usual, more low pressure systems than usual. Uh, we get a little bit of stronger than usual flow off the Gulf, although it's really just a tiny bit. And uh, we get a little bit of moisture here coming up. So good stuff. That's the stuff we want for storms. It's not like the perfect storm setup here, but at least this is a pattern that supports why we think the La Nina has an effect on our thunderstorms at all. Why does, you know, why would the ocean affect our thunderstorms in the middle of the country. Well, that's how. I'm going to compare that to what would happen if the La Nina was going to just blast right through the spring and keep on going. Those tend to be much more active, and those tend to have this digging trough here in the southwest, a much stronger than usual flow up off the Gulf, and a much lower pressure than normal across the plains. That's a much stronger signal for us to say that. If I'm a forecaster and I see that a few days out, I'm watching that pretty carefully because it looks like something that can get stormy. The other pattern, the one that was on the slide before, it's a little bit, I'm cautious with it, but it's not quite as strong of a signal. So overall, that means my forecast confidence for this spring is moderate. There's at least a little confidence there, but uh, it's pretty easy for other things to overwhelm these kind of weaker signals. Other things being those little boundaries I talked about and small weather things that we can't predict seasons in advance. And on top of all of this, let's talk about ground moisture a little bit. How many of you have seen the drought monitor before? Fewer? Okay. This is the drought monitor. It's a product that's actually put out by a collection of agencies that includes the National Drought Mitigation Center right here at UNL. Uh, and it keeps track of drought in categories across the country, kind of like hurricane categories. Instead of it being, uh, you know, on the Saffir-Simpson scale, we're on a drought scale. D0, D1, D2, D3, and D4. A D0 just means things are kind of dry lately, where a D4 means that we're in an exceptional drought, like this is the kind of drought you only get 2% of the years. So we have a bit of drought sneaking into the high plains and into even south central Nebraska, where we've got some D1 drawn up here. It's a little bit drier than normal right now. And what does that mean? Well, at this point, it's pretty weak, so not a ton. 
One thing it can mean is that uh, dry line features, that's some drier that comes off the desert and progresses across the plains during the day, dry lines progress more easily across dry ground. They kind of hit a wall when they hit the wet ground, but this means that the dry lines are more likely to jump out into the central plains and off of the high plains. To me, that says that it might shift our chances of developing supercells out to the central plains, maybe more so than the high plains. So it's something I'll keep an eye on in summer, the spring and summer when I'm forecasting for thunderstorms, is if this dry air is pushing out faster than maybe the models show or faster than I thought it was going to. Um, I'm not, a lot of our flow off the Gulf comes this way. I'm a little worried about that being dry down there, um, maybe creating some evaporation. But overall, I think the flow that comes up off the ground, kind of at the middle levels, should be able to skip over this and come up our way. But still, because it's dry down there, I'll probably keep my eyes open for whether we can get a good flow of moisture up from the Gulf. There we go. So, what are my odds pointing to this year? I've kind of reversed the wheel from last year. If I was going to spin this wheel, I've got a pretty low chance of hitting a quiet season compared to anything else. Not that it can't happen, but just that I, I think with the La Nina that's going away, with the dry line possibly being more in our neighborhood than usual, that our chances for a normal to active season are probably a little higher this year, certainly than the last couple of years. So that'll be something for us to keep an eye on this year. Maybe stay on our toes a little bit if you're a, a storm spotter or just a storm enthusiast. Be watching for it and keeping your eyes on the situation. A um, couple of acknowledgments to Josh for taking the uh, June 5th and June 10th uh, pictures for Scott Blair's May 22nd picture, Mike Collingshead for the May 22nd video, and then the Weather Service office from Aberdeen, South Dakota, which had the radar images. And with that, I'll be happy to take any questions. Thank you. <laughs> For those who didn't hear the question, it was what's going to happen this afternoon and tonight. Oh, there's probably going to be some thunderstorms. Uh, to be perfectly honest, I haven't looked at things all day here, so I, I don't have a good feel for what's going on in the last few hours. I would say that uh, from what I looked at this morning, we have the warm front that has clearly come through us. It's a lot warmer out than it was this morning and is lifting northward. Thunderstorms are going to develop along and near that warm front today. Uh, so the big question is where that is, and I don't know where it is right at the second, but where that warm front is is where I'm going to be watching and, and keeping an eye out. And then probably a little bit along the trailing front behind it. <laughs> Ken, what you, what you looking for there? <laughs> Question? Yeah, I have a question. Uh, Jim Flowers predicted uh, his weather this year. I think it was based on an analog of 1973-74. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Elwin Taylor, mm -hmm. I, ISU, he's you know he's still talking about how we're going to have our big drought. It's overdue. Mm -hmm. And uh, I recall 1974, and it was uh, started out wet, stormy. Uh, the southeast part of, the, of Nebraska and Missouri and those areas were enjoying a nice planting season. They were happy. We were getting too much rain, but that whole thing shifted north, and the last part of June, everything stopped. Yes. 108 and had the drought. Do you see any possibilities of something like that happening this year? I've also heard that prediction from both Jim Flowers and Elwyn Taylor. And by the way, out of curiosity, when I heard that, I went and looked up the tornado activity in this area that year. Uh, it was extremely active in the Mississippi River Valley. If anybody remembers the super outbreak of 1974, 
that was a very, very active year. Back here, it was uh, another tornado drought, actually, as luck would have it. And it was dry, as you mentioned, developing later in the year. Now, uh, analogs are interesting to look at how patterns match, but they're not good forecast tools because there are so many things that change each year, year to year, not the least of which is climate change, but on top of that, you have just weather patterns that set up in different ways, different places where moisture has developed. So um, it'll be interesting to see if it is similar to that, but um, as a forecast tool, I don't put a lot of weight in it. Yes, sir. Do you have any variables that you can look at that will tell you whether you have a, a compact tornado season or one that will stretch out through the uh, summer and into the early fall? That's a really good question, too. I wish I did. I actually uh, ran the timing of tornadoes through those uh, El Nino relationships, and there wasn't one. So I can't say that they start earlier in an El Nino or La Nina or that they end earlier. Uh, if I find one, I'd be really interested in it. But so far, I haven't found anything that's reliable yet. Is yes, ma'am. March 23rd, 2009, probably. Oh, okay. <laughs> I can't comment on, I, I have no idea why that town would not have tornado sirens, and it's well beyond what I look at for research, but it's a shame. Yes, ma'am. Um, is it true that we're in the same weather pattern as it was in the winter of 2003 into 2004? I've heard that we're in the same weather pattern as it was 2003-2004 where we had a very, very active season in tornadoes. We did true? have an active 2004, and to be honest, I haven't made connections from this year to that one to see if they're very similar or not. Um, I'm sorry, I missed part of your uh, presentation in the beginning, but What's the correlation between the number of lightning strikes? We seem to focus on that and the, and the, and the possibility of a tornado in there that area. That's a good question. The question was, what's the c connection between the number of lightning strikes and tornado potential? There's some active research going on to uh, determine if there is a relationship between lightning strikes and particular positive flashes. If you know the difference, there are negative flashes and positive ones. Positive ones are the ones that, when you look at them, they're really kind of sharp and strong. Uh, so far, I don't know what has come of that research, except that it is ongoing, and maybe they'll find some signal that that is an indication of a stronger thunderstorm. I've also seen research that suggests that there's an upswing in lightning activity just before a thunderstorm produces a tornado. Yes, sir? Uh, you mentioned uh, climate change just a little while ago. Have you seen any pattern changes that you might attribute to climate change locally? That is a really good question, too, and um, it's something I'm starting to look at just recently, at whether we can look at our weather patterns and see if there's a climate change signal in them. Um, my suspicion is right now we're not seeing a lot in the summer. Most of what we're seeing is in the winter months, but I think um, 
what I, actually Michael Mann was here just Thursday and Friday talking about climate change. And what he's looking at is whether our future climate scenarios look like they'd be more El Nino-like or more La Nina-like. And if they are, in fact, more La Nina-like, then that, combined with the research I've put together, would suggest we would have a, a little more tornado activity in a future climate than we do in our current climate. But until that research is a little better settled, it'll be hard to determine where this is going to go with it. Except that we can say, you know, we can give this either-or scenario at least. Yes, sir? We also had a low one the year before, so. It's it's not necessarily true. Uh, it's just a matter of statistical odds that yeah, if you have a year or a couple years that are slow, eventually you're going to have one that's that's more active than usual. But it's nothing I can look at in any, any kind of predictive way. Um, if that would have been the case, then last year would have been active for us, and it wasn't. Uh, an El Nino year storm-wise tends to suppress our activity. Uh, that's what we had last year, and uh, we tend to get a lot less flow off of the Gulf of Mexico. We tend to get more of a high pressure uh, at upper levels focused over us. And between the two, we tend to uh, kind of suppress everything in this area. The Dakotas, the northern Dakotas and northern Minnesota tend to get more active. In fact, it looks a lot like last year. Last year was a pretty classic El Nino signature. Any other questions? Peanut gallery? <laughs> I'm not ignoring you guys up there. I know you're there. <laughs> How do you think uh, the strange weather around the world will affect the weather in this area? How do I think the strange weather around the world will affect the weather here? Um, not much. It, uh, around the world, things are affected by those really long wave patterns, the patterns that persist for a while. and uh, We've had, for example, uh, uh, the North Atlantic Oscillation was in its cold phase over this winter, which it also was last winter, kept the East Coast cold through the winter, which is a little unusual. Um, but it hasn't shown much persistence into the summer, so that shouldn't be a factor. Um, all in all, it's, uh, it's going to depend on what we're looking at for the sort of big picture pattern into the spring. And um, a lot of things are connected. A lot of things are around the world that are a little unusual, like dryness, for example, in some parts, flooding in others, are connected to the El Nino and La Nina patterns. So they can be signs that help us give confidence that we're in a certain pattern. Um, as things are diminishing out of La Nina, we're sort of losing that, that real good signal. So it makes it a little tougher to tell. Does that answer your question? OK. Thank you. How do you see the changes in the ocean conveyor the deep water um, changes affecting our climate coming up from the Gulf, and does that have any effect on all the oil and everything that got dumped in there recently? That is a very deep question. <laughs> um, the question is about the uh, ocean conveyor belt and its circulation and how that might affect weather in the Gulf. That is a really good question as well. Um, it, it will eventually affect the distribution of, of temperatures in the ocean, in the Atlantic Ocean in particular. Uh, luckily, on longer time scales at this point, we're not looking at anything immediate. So um, I don't think it'll affect much for the oil spill and how that's transferred around. That should follow 
whatever patterns it's been following, the Gulf Stream and such, most of that's settled near the ground now. Um, but as far as the future climates, it's certainly something we have to watch out for as well. Uh, the more things melt off the continents and hit the ocean and we freshen up the water, the more it slows down that circulation and that changes temperature patterns everywhere. Uh, Art Douglas used to be out of Omaha and yeah. he, he called the water between the North, North Pacific uh, cold water and the southern one, where the, that's where the jet stream follows and he would get that Pacific intercadal oscillation that goes on there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, is that doing anything and what's he doing now or is he retired? Oh, ago. he's retired. He's living in Arizona, and I think he comes up once in a while, has a little party with Creighton people, and goes home to Arizona where it's warm again. <laughs> we follow all you meteorological <laughs> um, people. You're talking here. about the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, which a lot of climatologists watch as a, uh, a, surface temp a sea surface temperature pattern in the Pacific Ocean, not just at the equator like El Nino and La Nina, but across the whole ocean. A lot of climatologists argue that that's really just kind of an averaged El Nino and La Nina signal and don't give it much credence by itself, then there's another camp that gives it a lot of credence and, and sees some up and downward swing. So um, I haven't tied a lot of my research to that because it's still fairly controversial and I figure I'll let them all figure it out and then I'll use it or not use it later. Um, but it's, a, it's another good question. It's, it's a good example of how there are so many things that affect our weather patterns. El Nino and La Nina is one factor of so many others, including those temperatures in the northern Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico. Um, everything around the globe is interconnected, and it all ends up affecting our chances for tornadoes right here in this little part of Nebraska, and it's, it's pretty amazing. blowing free and uh, things of that sort. Does anybody know why those occurred? Yeah, that would probably make me some money too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're talking about the droughts that have been seen in our paleoclimate records from long times ago. And uh, w once again, these are matters of research that's still ongoing and there are a lot of people proposing answers. There's not a certain one that's out there. One proposed answer is actually uh, the El Nino and La Nina signal that perhaps the climate at that time tended to be a little bit more like a, I'm going to get this right, a La Nina at that time, I think. Um, and uh, that, uh, that would affect a longer term pattern. And um, uh, that's one possibility. Other ocean circulations are another possibility. But uh, again, a matter of ongoing research. And there may be some connection to that El Nino, La Nina signal, even for that. One last question. You bet. Uh, do you see the role of the sun playing much of a part, or is that still up for uh, research? Well, the good old sun plays a role in our climate, absolutely. Um, there are very known and predictable changes that the sun takes in its path of the orbit and in the tilt of our planet and all these things. There are also sunspot cycles. The effect of those uh, certainly is present, but it is a lot smaller than some other effects that are out there. Um, by, by, by factors of 10 or 100, it's, more, it's uh, less of a signal than, say, you know, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. But they do, you know, they do have patterns, and luckily for us, solar cycles are a little more predictable, so we can get a better idea of what those might be doing. Um, we've got a pretty good idea of what our sun's doing, so that's very helpful in the climate world. Thanks. Again, thank Barb. Thank you.